You guys, we are back again. I am here for the second installment of Killer Queens with my homies, Kyla and Katie. What's up, y'all? Hello. Um, today is going to be a humdinger episode. I feel like it's going to be explicit tag and it's probably going to be my favorite episode because we're talking about my favorite thing. No pressure. Serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I didn't... Who wants to go first? I guess. Um, I'll go first. <clears throat> okay. Katie, you go first. And then I'll go. And then Kyla can close us out. Sounds good. Okay. Um, so, uh, Shannon asked us to do our favorite serial killer, which I think is kind of weird to have a favorite serial killer. <laughs> potato, potato. But that's fine. No judgment here, because I'm about to talk about my favorite serial killer. Mm-hmm. Um, so mine is BTK, um, which he's more my favorite because of um, how he got caught. And so I'm going to talk more about that than like his actual crimes. Um, because I didn't even know about him until he got caught. Like I hadn't even heard of him because he'd been dormant for so long. Um, and then when he got caught, all the stuff started coming out and I was reading and watching and then his daughter wrote a book and I did not read the book, but like I watched the 2020, of course, with her talking (laughs) about her book. Um, and um, when I was researching today, it was just like, I was laughing while I was reading it because he was so egotistical and that led to his downfall. And it is just, it's ridiculous. So BTK stands for Brian Torture Kill. And, um, it was Dennis Rader and, um, he killed 10 people between 1974 and 1991. And, um, so his first um, his first, the first time he murdered people, it was a family of four. It was a mom and dad and two kids. And then horrifyingly, their other older three kids came home and found them all after the oh. fact. Um, and um, so that was his, so he killed four people in 1974. And then he sporadically killed um, until 1977, then killed again in 85. And then 91, and that was it. Um, And after that family of four, it was only women that he killed. And what made him interesting was that in 1974, like he wanted, he wanted notoriety. Um, So in 74, after his first killings, he left a letter at the public library describing the killings, like things that only the murderer would know, knowing that it would get to the police. And so then he um, signed that, like in that letter, he said that he wanted to be called BTK that stands for buying torture kill. Um, And so he corresponded with the police on and off that entire time. He was actively hunting and murdering people. Oh, in Wichita, Kansas. I didn't say that everything Mm. happened in Wichita, Kansas. And the last woman that he murdered was his neighbor. Um, and Rude. she was an older woman. Yes. Yes. 
Um, and she wasn't found in her home. He moved her to um, a street somewhere else in the city. So I guess to, you know, draw suspicion away from him. But like he was even so brazen as to go and murder his neighbor. <clears throat> so between 1974 and 1991, he killed 10 people. He also was married in 1971 and had two children in the late 70s. So his daughter is just one year older than I am. <gasps> and his son is a little bit older than that, but not much. Um, so and she looks just like him. Sorry. She looks just like him. Hate she it. Hate the genetics. That. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Thankfully, she doesn't have a mustache. Um, yeah. <laughs> otherwise she does look <laughs> just like him. And so, and the birth of his kids corresponds with like his dormant time in the seventies and then early eighties. And then in 1991, that was his, his last, the last time he killed, um, that was his neighbor. They moved right after that to a different city, which was really close to Wichita, Kansas. It was called park city, Kansas. Um, where he got a completely different job and um, he didn't, then he stopped killing. So what he was doing at this job, I just found this today in an article, was he was a compliance officer for the city. And people said that he was like a major stickler and he would like measure people's grass and stuff and like write like the dumbest citations. Um and just like make people follow all the rules. I don't know what that's about, but that's what he was doing instead of murdering people. It was his outlet. So crazy. <laughs> yes. I guess. Um, he was also the president of the congregation at Christ Lutheran Church in his city. Mm. Um, he was a Boy Scout leader. Um, that's for- where he learned all those knots, huh? No, he knew those knots before. Okay. Um, So I did not research like all of his perversions and like the masks and stuff. And I learned a lot about that from Mindhunter. I loved that show on Netflix. And I'm so, it's canceled. Did y'all know it's canceled? They're not doing another season. No, I thought it was coming back. No, No, they said he's he's working on it. Who? I the guy, it's it's because of the star. I, I read, keep talking, I read that he's in negotiation. Well, I hope it comes back because they started with BTK like from the beginning. Like they did yes. this of like baby BTK being, you know, not uh-huh. baby, but like young man BTK being like. Yeah, working at ADT. Yes, working at ADT, um, doing really weird stuff that his wife walked in on, the masks, the like, the just awful things. Um, okay, so the other thing that BTK did, which a lot of serial killers do, is he took, like, mementos from um, the homes of the people that he killed. So, flash forward. So, it's, like, in 1991, everything stops. Like, nothing else happens. Um, the police assume that he is in jail for another crime or something because serial killers just don't go dormant like that. Like, somebody mm-hmm. who's killed that much for that long doesn't just stop. Um but he did. He actually did. He just stopped and started measuring grass instead. Um, and <laughs> a family man and like, um, and, you know, he had his mementos and um, whatever else. 
But um, so in 2004, the Wichita, Kansas newspaper did, it was like the 30 year, it was the 30 year anniversary of that very first murder. And so they ran a story about um, the BTK, about the family, about the first murders, about like how Wichita was terrified. And um, we, and they assumed that he was either in jail or dead. And so that made Dennis Rader very, very angry because he was like, no, I'm still here and you guys haven't gotten me yet. So here I come again. So he's like 60 at this point and he starts another murder. And he also starts corresponding with the police again. And what he did was he went out. I'm going to meet myself because I'm going to laugh. <laughs> he went out. And um, he decided he's going to leave some packages for the police around the city because they they definitely should be looking for them. Right. Like, no, dude, nobody like everybody thinks you're dead or in jail. Like nobody cares. So he went to a Home Depot. He drove his own car and went to a Home Depot and put a box in the back of um, an employee's pickup truck um, and drove away and told no one about it and just thought that, like, somebody would find it and, you know. But no, nobody found it. Then he, uh, so he got mad that like nobody tried to contact him, you know, reach out in the way that his instructions said and stuff. Um, What was in the box? I'll tell you. Oh, okay. Then he decided to leave another box at a random stop sign. And then he called the police and said, oh no, he called a news station and said, I'm BTK and I left this. Hey, you remember me on BTK and I left this package <laughs> for you at this stop sign. So the news people go out, you know, they go out and the package is actually there. And it's a cereal box that said something to the effect of, um, I dropped another package at the Home Depot and I want to communicate with the police again. I want to communicate with you. So you need to like, why didn't you communicate with me? So the news station hands it over to the police and the police are like, all right, well, let's figure this out. They interview, they go to the Home Depot and they interview employees and stuff. And a guy is like, oh yeah, there was something weird in my truck. And like, I thought it was a joke. So I just threw it away. (laughs) So then the police go through the trash. This has been days and days later. They find the box and in the box is, um, like evidence of that, like this is actually BTK, like mementos from the house, like details that, you know, have never been published and all this stuff. The police are like, okay, this is really him. And he's really trying to communicate with us. And something that he asked in the letter is, um, can I communicate with you by floppy disk and not be traced? So. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So. Floppy disk. This is 2004. Idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you could, they're going to say no. Idiot. Exactly. So he asked the people who were chasing him if he could give them something and then them not track him through it. (sighs) And if they could, and and if that was possible, if they agreed to that, then to put this ad in the classified that said um, something like... (laughs) We're okay, Frank, or something like it was just something, you know, super random. Um, so he does, so the police are like, yeah, sure. We can't track you by a floppy disk. Send us a floppy disk. You have to tell me you're a cop or it's entrapment. What? <laughs> what? <laughs> so 
release. Um, I can't remember. I don't remember if it was like through a package or if he actually just mailed it. Um, mm-hmm. um, a package that had more like evidence of like pictures of, of stuff and more things proving that it really was him and a floppy disk. So the floppy, so the police are like, sweet, a floppy disk. And I even found something that said it was a purple, purple floppy disk <laughs> going oh in. And then, you know, like an hour, they had the metadata from the disc, which if he had, so he had printed some things. So Dennis Rader had printed some things from this disc out and he did it at church where he was the president of the congregation because his home printer was broken. So because his home printer was broken, he went up to the church, put in this disc and printed And the metadata in 2004 that the police were able to remove said the church that like this disc has been used at this church and it also had the name Dennis on it. So they like (laughs) moved onto the website and find that Dennis Rader is the um, president of the congregation at this church. And so they're like, all right, let's see what he drives. They see what he drives. They pull up the, the footage from the Home Depot where he like put the the package in that guy's his car like it was a black jeep cherokee so they're like okay Dennis black jeep cherokee and here is this guy this and you know this guy dropping that box into this guy's truck in a black jeep cherokee um so we're pretty sure we got him but we need dna we want dna because this blows my mind he left dna at that first crime scene in 1974 they collected it and kept it and did not Amazing. use it because they had nothing to test it against. Like they never had a suspect. Oh, so, you know, like every time like now we know that like every time you test DNA, it like disintegrates a little bit. Like you have mm-hmm. to have enough to get a really good DNA profile. Um, so they had kept it from 1974 to know to keep it. <laughs> it's, like and the, like in 1974, in the 80s, in the 90s, they had no. Did idea they even they know? Even exist? No, no. They knew that they had it. Could you try again? Oh my! Did you hear that? That was my watch. <laughs> my watch is calling Dennis Rader. No, don't call him. Um, <laughs> he's in jail still. Um, but anyway, in 80s is pen pal. It's fine. They kept the DNA. They kept. Wow. The DNA for 30 years that's that's makes me teary kind of just like the wherewithal to do that but also for the Mm -hmm. victims to think oh thank you and it was that first murder and that's the only time they had dna and they got him and they got him now how they got him is it's a little bit scary because they didn't want him to know that they were collecting his DNA. They didn't go through his trash. They didn't, you know, like go into his home and like get his hairbrush or toothbrush or like whatever. Um, and in 2004, we didn't have the ancestry DNA, all those, you know, DNA databases <coughs> we have now, that, you know, the police have been able to um, use to catch terrible, terrible people. His daughter had had a pap smear at college. So, and they requested her records and they matched it to her 
that it was familiar that it was her father. What? Are so, you for real? Yes. Yep. Yep. Oh. The hospital turned it over. Did she get permission? To- no. Nope. I know you lie. That's Mm-mm. rude. No, I just read a whole NPR article about it today because I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. They can take our smears from our good girl and compare it to crime scenes? Is that what you're saying? I don't know if they still can. They could in 2004. I'm not, like, upset about it as I, like, turn to, hey, Alexa, order my toilet paper. I'm not, like, freaking out about it. I'm just just saying, yikes. Yes, they matched it to her pap smear that she had had when she was in college. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, they, I don't know, I just, yeah, she didn't know. I mean, I read her book, which is like mainly about her, but it did like do the thing where it was like when we were camping, he had just killed this person, right? So it like his like it like compared his essential two lives, but she didn't know. Like I think FBI just showed up at her door. Yeah, is that right? Yes, yes. After the fact. Not before they didn't, they didn't ask her permission, right? To use her. I don't think so. I think they just like knocked on the door and it's like, Hey, your dad's a serial killer. Yes. Yes. I saw her say that. Yeah. Um, I've said pap smear like 10 times. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, knock, knock, knock. Hey, uh, we used your pap smear results. Bye. Bye. You, you don't have cervical cancer, but also bad news your your father's a serial killer <laughs> but yay on the squeamish cells i can't handle that that's weird yeah, i thought something oh yeah no no likey so what happened to him so i mean so they get him i mean like, y'all it took 15 days from the time they had the floppy disk to the- <laughs> that's the quickest they've ever that- <laughs> that's how dumb like they were given a gift like BTK reaches out from beyond basically, you know, like they all thought he was gone. Nobody had thought of him in years and years and years. And they're like, BTK is like, Hey, do you want a floppy disk? My ego, his ego, his ego. So they go to his house. I think it was his house. I don't know. So they go, when they go arrest him, they bring him in. And, um, only one, um detective talks to him like they had this whole plan with like profilers and everything of like we've got all this evidence but we want all his confessions too so this only this one cop talks to him only this one investigator talks to him and um he tells him the, like basically what he says to him in the very beginning is so we found out that your father's daughter wait your daughter's father sorry i said that your daughter's father is btk and he goes, oh, well, you got me then. I'm BTK. Like, and that was it. And he was so mad that the police lied to him. He could not get over that the police lied to him and told him that he couldn't be tracked when he totally could be tracked through a floppy disk. Like, that was his sticking point. What's his, what's, what's wrong with him? <laughs> well, a lot of things. <laughs> yeah. But what's the... What is that block of being smart enough to get away with murder and could have coasted into oblivion? Retirement. Yes. Complete, like, 
but then get stuck on a semantics technicality because you don't understand mm -hmm. how the law works. But also, no, his ego, he needed so, like, he needed to, like, know that people were hunting him and know that, like, he was taunting the police mm -hmm. and the police totally taunted him. Yeah. Right. So, um, he, so that day, he was just like, yep, it's me. And, like, he didn't, like, fight it or anything. And um, he, uh, so he talked for 30 hours. He confessed and he didn't. <laughs> and he was like, go get my treasure trove. He told them where to find all of his memorabilia, which was in his desk, in his office, in a, like, secret, like, drawer compartment. Um, and so Dang. everything um they had you know absolutely everything plus dna right so they had so his wife never was like hey uh what is this like nothing ever no no and in mine hunter which i know is like not totally but like in mine hunter she like walks in on him doing some really weird stuff yeah and then it's just like oh and you know runs away he was into a asphyxiation and mm -hmm. right and yes, yes. I can't remember something else. Okay. Has his wife ever spoken out though? Because I know the daughter wrote the book, but she wouldn't mm -hmm. like if he had like weird sexual fetishes or whatever, deviant sexual fetishes, the daughter wouldn't have known about those. Mm -mm. But like I don't think the wife has ever spoken out about anything. Probably not. She, she did file for emergency divorce, like oh. <laughs> emergency <laughs> divorce. That's yes, that's what I said. It was like, oh, I didn't know you could get emergency divorce. <laughs> I don't know why that's <laughs> funny, but emergency divorce. <laughs> like, forget the courts. Like, no, lady, you just got to get one judge to be like, yeah, you get that. <laughs> this, this is my really quick. If we could sign emergency <laughs> please, divorce, please, I need to get away. Yes, yeah, that's. I I thought about. Uh, the wife of the Golden State Killer, she never, or she hasn't yet, you know. Wait, was he, he was divorced though, right? Yeah, but he was married at the time that he was. Yes, that he was doing all the terrible things. Yeah. And so I wonder what, besides shame, maybe it's because of like what, just what I said of like, y'all never picked up on anything. Like there was mm -hmm. no, you know, and they don't, they probably don't want to hear that from everybody. Mm -hmm. so they stay quiet yeah and like so during his trial and stuff i don't know if y'all remember watching the news but he was absolutely not remorseful about anything and showed mm -hmm. zero emotion yeah um and um so he's serving 10 life sentences oh he down so he's still alive he's in his 70s in hanging out in kansas yeah He's in that big prison that I feel like there's like four or five heavy hitters in. Oh, really? Yeah. Because one time Marcus was talking about going there, not to the prison, but to the state that the prison is in. I was like, oh, there's so many serial killers. And he was like, well, you can't go with me because of what you just said. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. Ah, uh, well, that's good. BTK. <clears throat> That's BTK and his ridiculous ego that got him caught with a purple floppy disk. 
that he was mad that the cops lied. Not that he killed Tim. Okay. No, no, no. He's mad that the cops lied because he, oh, something else that I read was like, he thought that the cops were enjoying this back and forth. And so that the cops would want to keep it going as long as he wanted to keep it going. So he sounds completely detached from reality also. Well, yeah. Yes. Like he thought that he's in a game with the police. And the police are like, oh, no, we're trying to get you. Like, for yeah. real. We're, we're trying to <laughs> arrest you for murder. Like, yeah. this is not <laughs> Tracy. It's so incredibly freaky that he was living this double life. Yes, yes. And that he walked down the street and murdered his neighbor and then just went home. Like, that's just, I don't mm-hmm. know. It, I can't yes. handle the double life. And like that yeah. he was at church doing all the things for all the years. In the name of Jesus? What? Yes. And I'm, I'm sure people are like, oh, he's just quirky. And so that's what I'm like, that's a quirky <laughs> person. Uh-oh. <laughs> like, does that mean they're detached from reality? I'm also a quirky person. And I cried. <laughs> One time I hit a squirrel and I cried for three hours because I thought, what if that squirrel was like the dad squirrel and he was going to get food and he never came home? And Marcus is like, squirrels don't have complex emotions, you crazy woman. <laughs> <laughs> but that means you have empathy, right? So yeah, yeah, not, yeah. That's not bad for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's the people oh. who are super detached, quirky. Yeah, it's it it's the double life also of just like having a complete mm-hmm. not fake, but kind of just, you know. Well, it is fake. It's the. Yeah. It makes me distrust people even more. Um, yeah. That's BTK. Um, I'm glad you told me that Mindhunter actually is coming back. Did you look it up? I didn't look it up. Mm-mm. Okay, I did. It says um, season three updates. David Fincher reportedly in contract renewal talks with Netflix. I hope so, because that was a really good show. It was really, really well done, I thought. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Um, well, sit back, ladies, because I got a I got a humdinger. No, Yay! I got a I got a heavy hitter. Okay. Um Theodore Robert <laughs> Bundy was born on November twenty-fourth, nineteen forty-six in Vermont. Uh I'm going to skip over because there's a lot of details. I'm just going to say, I know everybody listening probably knows who Ted Bundy was. He killed like a billion people. Okay. I'm just kidding. He killed, he confessed to killing 30, but um, detectives and police think that the number was actually in the hundreds. So that's. I can't even the fact that like states couldn't talk to each other to figure out that that's why like because he was traveling the u.s just oh my gosh okay mm-hmm. him and the golden state killer oh my gosh also yes. all of this is happening at the same time yes. if you were a white <laughs> woman or a sex worker between 1960 and 1985 Done. it's a if you made it through, my dude, like, it's amazing because there were so many predators just hunting humans in this country at that time. So I think it's especially in California, California. Uh, yeah, California, uh, 
Pacific Northwest. Uh, it, I, I don't, I don't know how y'all made it, but if you, if you can hear me and you listening, congratulations. Um, Ted Bundy was born in November of 1946. Um, a really fascinating thing that to me was that, and this happened often, especially in Catholicism, when a young girl got pregnant, uh, the, the parents, her parents would raise her child as a sibling and she would be the older sister that that was common and so i mean not common but it was a a common thread when a girl got pregnant early in her life when a woman got pregnant so that happened to ted bundy he found out uh as a teenager that his sister was actually his mother and his parents were actually his grandparents and there's a a famous, she's not that famous, but kind of a famous psychologist, psychiatrist, Dorothy Lewis, who thinks that when he found out that his mother, his sister was his mother, that was like the click that kind of made him lose it. Um, so I'm going to scroll back down. When before he found out that his sister was his mother, she moved to Tacoma, Washington and got married and her husband adopted Ted and that's where he got his last name, Bundy. And so in 1965, he graduated college and went to the University of Puget Sound. And then after a year, he transferred to University of Washington where he started needing he started dating a girl named Stephanie Brooks and I'm doing air quotes. You can't see that on the podcast because they don't give her real name. And I'll tell you why in a little bit. Um, by 1968, he had dropped out of college and started working minimum wage jobs. And Stephanie broke up with him because of his lack of ambition. And so she was like, I don't want any scrubs and this is about the time that he found out that his mom was a sister. And so he lost it. Something went bananas in his brain. And in 1971, he did three things. He started working at a suicide hotline in Seattle alongside a former police officer and crime writer named Ann Rule. Uh, Ann would later say that she thought Ted was kind and empathetic and this is not really I didn't take this as an indictment on her police skills so much as that the level of psychopathy in Ted because mm-hmm. I think that's important to uh, remember that he was beyond like people still study his level of psychosis um, Anne would go on to write one of the definitive biographies of Ted Bundy, and it was named The Stranger Beside Me. Did y'all read that? I read it. It was really good. It was so good. I haven't Um, read it yet. It's on my list. I have it if you want it also. Uh, So that's one of the three things he did. Another thing he did is he went back to college. He became an an honor roll psychology student, and he graduated in 1972 and then matriculated to law school in 73. The third thing he did was he rekindled his relationship with a Stephanie and then um, 
the girl that dumped him for being for having a lack of ambition and then he ghosted her he pretty much got engaged to her and then stopped talking to her and he would later say that he did that just to prove that to himself that he could marry her if he wanted to crazy anyway okay crazy like that's a lot of effort i know like so much effort and that's nothing compared to what he would go on to do but yeah just that kind of that ego it's the ego yeah he did it to get back at her yeah yeah um so as a 2L he started skipping classes and then stopped completely when young ladies started disappearing in the Pacific Northwest. So shortly after midnight on January 4th 1974 Bundy entered the basement apartment of 18-year-old dancer and UW student Karen Sparks and he bludgeoned her to death and that's not true. He bludgeoned her and left her with permanent mental and physical disabilities. Less than a month later, he did the same thing to another student, Linda Healy, and he didn't leave her for dead. After he assaulted her, he dressed her and carried her away. Where she was later, she, he did kill her. Um, the first half of 1974, women from the University of Washington were disappearing at a rate of one a month. So, pause. Oh, Can you imagine? <laughs> could you imagine if you just, if you had a kid, but also if you were a woman that was at the school? Like, both scenarios. Like, once a month, someone is just yeeting off the planet never to be seen again. And we're just cool okay oh, yeah i'd go home like i'm gonna yeah, wait this out at yeah. home okay <laughs> I, there's no I, I studying online but yeah i'd drop out i'd go to community yeah. college there's no way mm-hmm. um i want it there's a lot so i'm gonna go f- kind of fast the donna mason <laughs> left for a jazz concert and never arrived elaine rancourt never made it back to her dorm after meeting with her academic advisor. Uh, Roberta Parks never made it to a coffee date. And detectives had little to go on because the missing women had little in common except being young white college women with long hair parted down the middle. So there were women also... Yeah, everybody in the 70s. And they started like (laughs) changing their hair and cutting it short. That was the thing that happened. And I thought that was interesting because they're like, I'm, you're not going to get me. Chop, chop, chop. Um, Brenda Ball was last seen on June 1st talking to a man with his arm in a sling. Georgianne Hawkins was last seen on June 11th when witnesses said they saw a man in the same alley where she disappeared on crutches struggling to hold a briefcase. Um, I... I heard on another podcast where they warned girl, warned women, don't help adults. Like you, if an adult has, you know, you don't have to help them. And especially because that's what he would play on is mm-hmm. being, having a handicap and needing help. And then, okay. So after Bundy dropped out of law school, he started working as the assistant director of the Seattle crime prevention advisory commission. So he's like working with victims and he's writing pamphlets on for rape victims while he's, he's raping. Yeah. yeah. So it's like 
the double life thing. I, uh, while he was working at the advisory commission, he met and started dating a woman named Carol Boone. Uh, July 4th of that same year, two women were abducted in broad daylight from a crowded beach at Lake Sammamish mm-hmm. State Park in Issaquah. Five female witnesses described an attractive man wearing a tennis outfit with his arm in a sling, which also you can't play tennis with. Never mind. Uh, Speaking with a light accent, uh, asking for help, unloading his sailboat. Witnesses saw Janice Ott leave in his car. And then four hours later, Denise Nasland left the picnic at the beach and never returned. So police released a sketch and details and Ann Rule, with whom he'd worked at the prevention hotline, one of his professors, a current coworker at the advisory commission and an ex-girlfriend all recognized the sketch, his name, because he introduced himself as Ted, the balls, yeah. oh my gosh, um, and the Volkswagen Beetle that the witnesses saw at the beach. They all called the tip hotline and said, uh, I know a Ted who drives a beetle who looks like this sketch. Uh, And the detective simply did not believe that a clean cut law student with no criminal record could be the suspect. So they dismissed those. No, they had so many people. Yeah. People to call in. Yes. And also I hate to make everything about race, you guys, but a white guy there's just no way Jerome would have d- gotten away with all of these murders. Not that I'm like trying to cape for, you know, like we can't even murder, but I can't imagine. I can't imagine how he just kind of floated, you know, mm-hmm. just being a attractive white guy mm-hmm. and everybody just, Oh, that's just Ted. He's fine. It just, ah, it makes me so mad. On a racist standpoint, but also murder standpoint. You're not wrong. <laughs> no, I mean you're exactly right. There's no. Sorry if your name like, is Jerome. I don't. If you're white and your name is Jerome, I doubt it. Please email me. So. I know. I knew a white guy named Jerome. For <laughs> real. Okay, Lamarcus. It. Uh, <laughs> Demarcus. Yeah, I just. I can't imagine that uh, a DeMarcus getting away with this many murder. Anyway, somehow in 1974, Bundy received a second law school acceptance, and this time in Salt Lake City. So he had a hard time in law school there. And a month after his arrival, women started disappearing. A still unidentified hitchhiker in Idaho, a 16-year-old girl named Nancy Wilcox, Melissa Smith, who was 17, and the daughter of a police chief, Laura Aimi, also 17, were all killed by Ted Bundy. Um, on November 8th of that year, Bundy approached Carol Durant, pretending to be a police officer. He asked her to accompany him to the police station to file a complaint, and she complied. After some time after they got in the car bundy pulled over and tried to handcuff her and she put up a fight and he ended up handcuffing both cuffs on the same hand so she yeeted out of his car and was able to escape later that same evening a 17 year old deborah kent went missing after leaving a play to pick up her brother and in the parking lot the next day police found the key to carol's handcuffs so he Mm -hmm. had gone back for 
a kill. Um, and he wasn't arrested until the following year, 1975. So he admitted to killing 30 people in four years, like per capita. That I mean, it's just, it's so many. I can't even, it's crazy to me. Uh, he was arrested in 1975 and then released on bail. Again, white falling up. I don't get it. In 74, he was supposed to stand trial for one of the murders and he waived extradition to Washington and stayed in Denver, Colorado. And he asked to, to be his own attorney and that gave him privileges to the law library where he jumped from the third story window and was on the run for six days. That's like the most insane part of the story. Like when I was watching this, <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry, what? He jumped out of a window and ran away? Yeah. And nice. was out for six days. And did a lot of damage in those six days. Yeah. No, mm -hmm. this was, okay, wait, this is the Didn't second. He? So the, the second time he broke out of jail, um, oh, he purposefully, times. yeah, he broke out two times he, the second time. So they caught him six days later, they put him back in jail. Uh, this time he devised kind of a long game. He lost weight so that he could fit through an air vent. He sawed a hole and he ended up losing 35 pounds. And on December 30th of 1977, he broke out of the Colorado Springs jail by the time the guards discovered he was gone 17 hours later, he was already in Chicago. On January 7th, he had made his way to Tallahassee, Florida. He rented a room near the Florida State University under a, an assumed name. And a week after his arrival, he entered the Chi Omega sorority house through a rear this door with... Huh? So this is the bad one. Like the yeah. real bad one. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm skipping over some of the goriness of it, mm -hmm. um, but he <clears throat> at three in the morning he attacked four women, killing two in less than fifteen minutes, with an earshot of thirty others who heard nothing. So this mm -hmm. was berserker mode, which we mm -hmm. we know the three of us know of, like when you're just at your when it someone who's having a mental break is at their wits end and they're going crazy. This mm -hmm. was him going crazy. So he killed two, attacked four in less than 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and that, again, blows my mind. Yes. And a house full of people. A house, 30 people were in that mm -hmm. sorority house. They heard nothing. Um, and so he left that house. Uh, Eight blocks away, he attacked Cheryl Thomas, dislocated her shoulder, and fracturing her jaw in five different places. She was left permanently deaf and with equilibrium damage that ended her dancing career. I'm, I skipped over the Chi Omega house because it is gruesome, but he, he yeah. Um, on February 9th, 12-year-old Kimberly Leach from Jacksonville, Florida, 150 miles away, never returned from her homeroom class at school. So a Pensacola police officer stopped him on February 12th for a warrant 
from that beetle that he reported missing, which was a technicality that he used when he was pretending to be his own lawyer um, because everybody had named the beetle as mm-hmm. the whatever. And so he yes. said, oh, well, I reported it missing. Anyway, the police officer was like, bet. Well, uh, pulled him over. There was a fight. And after a brief chase, he a- he was apprehended and he told the cop, I wish you had killed me. So the Kayamega assaults and trial were covered by 250 reporters from five continents and was the first trial to be nationally televised. After a lot of drama and spectacle, and I'm skipping over the trial because time, um, Bundy was finally convicted and died by the electric chair at 716 on January 24th, 1989. People sang and danced and set off fireworks in the field across from the prison and cheered when the hearse carrying his corpse left the prison. He confessed to, I already said this, he confessed to 30 homicides, which he committed in seven states in the span of four years, and his true victim total is believed to be much higher. He also has a child. So I skipped over the the woman that he was dating her name was Carol Boone. He ended up in the courtroom uh, um, asking for her hand in marriage. And when you do that, like when you get married, you can't like, testify against yeah. Him. yeah. So yeah. she was like a witness for the prosecution. And because she was like, yes, I'll marry you, that like he thought that would seal his. That anyway, he was still convicted. So all this drama, conjugal visits. She had a child. I think it was a daughter. Of course, we don't know her name because she changed her name and the child's name soon after he was convicted. Um, he was believed to have suffered from bipolar f- at first and then multiple personality disorder. But most psychologists land on him now as having antisocial personality he was a psychopath who used outward charm and charisma and he had little or no actual personality beneath and psychopaths can distinguish right from wrong but have minimal it has minimal effect on their behavior and they have no guilt or remorse and they also think that he had a lot a healthy dose of narcissism because of the manipulative behavior Ah, Ted Bundy is my favorite. I just, I think it's just, I think it's amazing in the, in the rudest way, how he was able to finagle his way Mm -hmm. one throughout our justice system, even as a white man, but also the victimology of pretending to be injured and how he preyed on people and their generosity of spirit and then killed them like with such uh, the human brain. I just, I, yeah, I just thought, Oh my gosh. Um, and so a lot of it, of his bodies in Washington. Now he did have a lot of, um, where he did unsavory things to besides killing them. But even after they were dead, he would revisit the bodies and have sex with them and 
um, put makeup on them and all that kind of stuff. He buried and dumped a lot of the bodies on Taylor Mountain. And there was a story, and this might be creepy pasta, which means this might be fake or not, but I heard it on another podcast and it gave me goosebumps. So I'll tell you. Um, Taylor Mountain. So it's like, of course, haunted, right? Because all of these dead bodies are on it. Um, but in 1975, there was a guy who um, told his kid, he told his kids the story of when he met their mother and they were going on a date to like go necking, gross. And they were going on Taylor Mountain um, for the view or whatever. And they were walking on a trail and all of a sudden they got like this super creepy feeling. Um, and so like they felt it and were like, okay, we're going to turn around and go back. So they turn around and they left and thought nothing of it until Ted Bundy did a interview because after he was convicted mm -hmm. and waiting for, he, he talked to anybody who would listen because yeah. of that he ego. He wouldn't shut up. Like yeah. he knew everybody. Ego. Yeah. Yeah. Dobson even last days. He was like, oh, porn made me do it. Whatever. Right. So. Oh. <laughs> so um, oh, wait. On what Can we pause for one second? Because I yes. have to tell you that I was at a Disciple Now retreat when I was a junior or senior in um, uh, high school. Yeah. And our leader showed us that Bundy mm -hmm. <gasps> yeah. made yeah. me do it. And um, I had no idea who Ted Bundy even was. It's like, this is yep. so strange. And I feel very weird about it all. We're the same age. Yes, they showed it to us too. And I was yeah, like, okay. porn makes you kill people? <laughs> what kind of porn are you watching? That's not, <laughs> That's not what you're supposed me, to do. I was like, what is this exactly? I don't even know what porn is, guys. So, someone help me, please. I'm lost, as usual. Like, I feel like there's some real lapse in judgment and sharing that with children. You know, like, mm, absolutely. Because I, I remember watching it as a kid, because, like, Dr. Dawson, such a heartfelt conversation. Mm. So gross. So problematic. So problematic. Extremely problematic. <sighs> I mean, I'm not going to like start a porn fan club, but like, I don't, <laughs> I don't think, I think we're villainizing the wrong thing, you know? Yes. 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 Agreed. Um, but yes, I did. I watched that too at church. Um, they talked more about sex than Jesus when I was, anyway. Um, <laughs> So um uh so this the 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 dad had told their kids the story and it was just like a whatever and then it wasn't until ted bundy did an interview where he talked about um one time where he was dumping a body and he heard footsteps and that's when he thought he was going to get caught so he climbed a tree and the couple walked right underneath them and then all of a sudden they turned around and walked out and he was like that was the only time I thought I was going to get caught because he he was like I didn't know if I was gonna I didn't know how I was going to kill two people at one time because he'd never done that I guess mm -hmm. and so that gave me goosebumps because no ma'am you know, 
That's creepy. Anyway, so that is my favorite serial killer, Theodore Bundy. They killed him. He's out of here, but he was um, very prolific in this. And, and it was also that time of where police departments did not talk to each other. There was no database. There was no CODIS or whatever. There was no system. And so all he had to do was go out of state lines and start yanking him again. And he was able to do it. So his um, longtime girlfriend wrote a book and her daughter who grew up, I think she was like five when they started dating um, and they were like engaged off and on. She wrote a memoir that was out of print, but it's now back in print. Um, and her daughter wrote the epilogue. So <gasps> I just read it like last month. It was really interesting. It was kind of the same thing as the BTK's daughter's book and that it's, it doesn't go into much about the murders, but it's like when he um, killed the two women when he, at the lake, when he was using his British accent, like mm -hmm. he had the kayak that she had given him and <sighs> they had just been out kayaking like two days before that at that same lake. And then he went back. And so it's like that. It highlights his double life. Very interesting. Two in the same day. Like, huh? Wasn't there the movie too? I haven't watched. The oh movie. yes. Uh, oh, Simon Sources. Yeah, the internet. That movie that you're talking about, the Ted Bundy tapes, Stranger mm -hmm. Beside Me. That is where I got all of this information mm -hmm. from. But yeah, that I want to watch. I haven't read the book that Kyle is talking about, but I want to. It's good, and I haven't seen the Zac Efron movie. So they made the movie from her like apparently it's from her point of view and they never contacted her so then finally she reached out to like the movie company and they um were like oh yeah i guess we should talk to you and then that's when she re-released the book with her daughters and he has a daughter out there like she's she's not gonna say anything i'm sure but she could probably well i guess she couldn't she didn't know any you know she didn't know anything she just has his like, dna can you inherit being a psychopath like is that in your genes well uh -huh. i mean then we have to talk about nature versus nurture well i mean her mom had to be crazy if she married him oh she was in love she can well, save like, him from his yeah evil porn addiction because that's the thing, like, that's the narcissism part of when people are, like, in the snare. They don't, they don't realize that they're in it until, and I guess she just never realized it because there were all of these things. And he even confessed and she was still like, no, I'm going to have your baby. Gross. Ted Bundy's daughter, if you're listening, uh, <laughs> holler at me. <laughs> I'd love to get the exclusive. I just think that's amazing. Like, I'm Ted Bundy's love child. I was conceived on a conjugal visit while he was on death row. Are you joking? Yes. Would you tell your daughter? Like, would you, if you change your name, change her name? I mean, what if she doesn't even know? She doesn't know. <gasps> what if she doesn't even know that Ted Bundy's her dad? Well... Oh, I didn't even think of that. Right? How old would she be? Would she be of the age that she'd want to just like put her DNA in gen match or 
Oh, maybe. You know? Yeah, that'd be a shock, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's wild. Yes, I'm Googling. Okay. R- Wait. I don't know. I don't think the mother was cool <gasps> enough to hide She absolutely that. would. She was born October 24th, 1982. She was born <laughs> less than a month before me. She uh-huh. absolutely would have what if put you're her, friends with her and you don't even know it <laughs> i would die i would simply have to die <laughs> um rosa okay that's a it's it's a fake it's not a real name but is often referred to as rose bundy but it's that's her birthday so she has to know because if she knows her birthday well right if she I mean, knows she her might. birthday, she's white. She's from a, she's from the states, and she doesn't know who her dad is. And her mom's kind of sketch and maybe a little crazy. That's that's five I'll clues. Talk to her about her dad. <laughs> I don't know. I don't. I don't know if the mom was together enough to like hide all of that. Like I'm pretty True. sure she... your dad was a great patriot named Ted Bundy. It's probably the <laughs> stupid shit she said. Rose. <laughs> If your mom's real name is Carol, <laughs> holler at me. <laughs> Not me on Facebook right now looking for Rose Bundy. Kyla, do your... She <laughs> 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 has a little parentheses next to her face. <laughs> Rose Bundy. She's 38. <laughs> I didn't know my dad and I put my DNA in it. I know she did too. Okay, I am going to do, I'm going to talk about Ed Kemper. So, Mm. here's my confession. I watched Mindhunter, I started like the third episode, Brian was watching it, and I walked through and I was like, watching a show about serial killers and you didn't tell me? So I didn't know a lot about, like I missed the episode where he premiered in Mindhunter, he premiered in the second episode. So um, last summer, driving home from a girl's trip in Powder Canyon, I listened to the Crime Junkie episode mm-hmm. on him, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, well, this is fascinating. So, okay, I'll try to do this quickly. But he's an American serial killer, a serial racist, and a necrophiliac. That's all we're going to say about that. He killed- Necrophi- necrophilia, yeah. is that sex after? Yeah, that's it. That's, that's all you need to know about it. Because I learned some stuff that I was unhappy that I learned about. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to spare y'all from that tonight. Um, you, I don't want to hear it. No, I don't want to talk about it. Um, okay. So he had several nicknames. He's called most well-known as the co-ed killer, but he was also called the co-ed butcher, the ogre of Aptos, the mad titan, Bumblebot, and Big Ed. Those were his nicknames or his other names. He was um, six foot nine. Giant. Six foot nine, y'all. Um, he killed 10 people, including his paternal grandparents, his mother, and her best friend. So let's talk about that. He um, was raised by his mother, who was um, an abusive, alcoholic woman. He had siblings. He was known to torture animals as a child. All your standard serial killer behaviors. He um, was living with his grandparents when he was 15. He and his grandmother got in an argument. He took the rifle his grandfather had given him to kill varmints 
around their farm and he shot her twice in the back. He then went to the front yard, waited for his grandfather to arrive, and shot his grandfather because he did not want him to go in. See that he shot his grandmother and be mad at him. He didn't want to get in trouble. So he was arrested um, and diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic by court psychiatrists, and he went to um, the state hospital as a criminally insane juvenile. Um, he was released at the age of 21 because he convinced his psychiatrist that he had rehabilitated. His IQ, y'all, was 145. So he was genius level. Um, and he was able to befriend um, the psychiatrist to the point where he was like actually um, conducting psychiatric evaluations on his other inmates. Like other inmates in them. I mean, he was in a state hospital, but so that's where he learns like you never leave a live witness, that kind of stuff. He learned stuff from people who had committed atrocious crimes. Convinced them that he was okay. Like he under he figured out what they were looking for in order to convince them that he was sane. He would hang out in bars after he was twenty one, and he liked to hang out in the bar that was most. Um, frequented by the police in the town where he lived in, which was Burbank, California. So he um, became a confidant and a friend to the police force. Um, that's what that's that he called him Big Ed. He was Big Ed. They actually tried to convince him to become a police officer. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so there's a great police department there. Um, <laughs> no, but they do that. They do that sometimes. Like that's a thing that some to stay close to investigations. No, they had they, no idea. They didn't know. They thought he. I was. know, but the perpetrator tries <laughs> yes. to stay close to the. Yeah. Yes, because then he could learn about like are people figuring out? Like mm-hmm. he would sit there and listen to them talk about the murders he had committed. Um, yes. Okay, he was after he. Um, was after he killed his grandparents and served time for that, he got out of prison and lived with his mother, who was um, for sure emotionally, mentally, verbally abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, he so his after his imprisonment and he 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 waited a little bit, like he didn't start killing right away. Um, he actually even got, he convinced the psychiatrist enough that his juvenile record was expunged. So there were police officers who had no idea what he was even, what he'd even served for, right? And we're talking about like um, 1972. So it's not like we, they had the internet where they could Google it, Kemper. Okay. He, um, his, Later murders were between May of 1972 and 1973. That's when he killed six other women. He was um, known to dismember them and decapitate them. Um, His first um, were, his first murder after his grandparents were Mary Ann Pesky and Annette Luchessa. 
Um, and that was in May of 1972. He was driving to Berkeley, California, and he picked up the two girls hitchhiking. Um, he dumped their bodies in, um, or he put both of their bodies in the trunk of his car, car went to his apartment, and he was even stopped by a police officer because he had a broken taillight. Oh. Um, he ended up um, dumping them in the Loma Parita Mountains where they have found pesky skull, but um, neither. They haven't found the other girl's bodies. He then killed Aiko Kuhn. Um, she was a 15-year-old dance student. She was hitchhiking on her way to dance class. He then That was in um, September of 1972. He then killed Cindy Shaw. Um, and this was when he moved back in with his mother and he picked her up. Um, she was 18, driving around campus. And he shot her, killed and buried um, her in the um, desert. And then he... Um, buried her head in his mom's garden. Um, gross. I know. Rude I'm sorry. Also. I said I wasn't going to talk about the gross stuff, but it's all kind of gross. He yeah. went on to kill four more co-eds. Okay. He then killed his mother, or he killed two more co-eds, and then he, um, Rosalind Thorpe and Allison Liu, and then he killed his mother, Clarnell Strandberg, and after he murdered her, he called her best friend and had her best friend come over and then killed her because he thought if there were two dead bodies that would look less suspicious than if um, it was just his mom that was dead. What? How about no dead bodies? Damn. Right? <laughs> so no I mean, let's use that, that um, 145 IQ a little better than this. Um, so he fled the scene. Um, he left a note for the police. Um, and he like put the body, put one of the bodies in the closet and um, um, cleaned up. And he said, left a note and it said approximately 5.15 a.m. Saturday. No need for her to suffer anymore at the hands of this horrible, murderous butcher. It was quick, asleep the way I wanted it, not sloppy and incomplete, just a lack of time. I got things to do. And then he fled the scene. He drove nonstop to Pueblo, California, and he took um, caffeine pills to stay awake for the over 1,000-mile journey. He had three guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition in his car, and he believed he was the target of an active manhunt. Oh, gosh. Um, he he kept listening to the radio, thinking, "Oh, I'm going to hear something about these murders," but they didn't hear anything. Um, so he called the police and confessed to the murders. But the guy who answered the phone was like, "Just call back at a later time." He didn't take it seriously. What? Yeah, is that um, a thing? No, because people don't call and say, "Hey, I just murdered two people. Why aren't you looking for me?" Right. So the 911 operator was like, meh, later. Yeah, just call back later. No one's here to take your call. So weird. He got um, fired. So then he called back again, and he asked to talk to an officer that he knew from all his hanging out at the bar time. Um, he confessed to that officer about killing his mother and her best friend. Um, and then he waited for the police to come take him into custody. Um, when he was asked why he turned himself in, um, 
he said the original purpose was gone. It wasn't serving any physical or real or emotional purpose. It was just a pure waste of time. Emotionally, I couldn't handle it any longer. Toward the end there, I started feeling the folly of the whole damn thing. And at the end of near exhaustion, near collapse, I said, just help to hell with it and called it all off. So he ended up um, confessing to um, all 10 of his, all eight of his later murders. So his grandparents were the first. He served for that. He's now serving eight consecutive life sentences. He is still alive. <gasps> and um, he is 72. Let me look it up. 72 years old. Oh my gosh, I'd be his pen pal. Big old butt camper. Hey, you crazy mofo. (laughs) So did, did, like, were they already looking for somebody who was killing these women or no? They were. They were looking for, they knew somebody was killing, but because of the sporadicness of the killing, they weren't sure who was, like, was it the same person committing it? Um, bodies were dumped to different places, dismemberment was different, so they weren't sure that they were looking for the same, they, they didn't know if the killer was the same person. Um, and probably from what kind of he said, that podcast, like the fact that he was listening in on conversations, probably informed his decisions about like where to dump bodies and what to do with yeah, them. Yeah, yeah. I think killing his mom was kind of the the psychotic break, right? Because that's where he sort of veered off driving around to pick up girls. And that was more like, he had like an emotional connection to that, whereas like he was just driving around picking up random women before that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wasn't he the one in Mindhunter who had the high heels? I don't Didn't they bring high heels in Mindhunter? Who'd they bring high heels to? Uh, I know who you're talking about, but no, Ed Kemper this was this one. He was in the same facility with Charles Manson. Yes. Oh. And so the um, Holden Ford character in Mindhunter is based off um, a guy named John Douglas. And he did, after after um, they arrested Kemper for the, and he was serving his time. He did interview him just the way Holden Ford did. Um, and that is what, in, what they've gathered from those interviews is what informs the way serial killers are identified now. So prior to that, they were like, oh, is it the same person killing all these people? But they didn't really know like what patterns to look for. And he has like, he helped um, devise the way the FBI does that now from his interviews, just like in Mindhunter. But I thought that was really interesting. At the end of Mindhunter, they, he stands up and grabs Holden Ford. Remember right before Holden goes to the psych, psychiatric hospital because of his job? Yeah, um, yeah. And the guy who plays um, Ed Kemper is like, looks so much like him. It's very yeah. creepy. Mm-hmm. Very insane. So, he said that um, John Douglas said that his portrayal, the Mindhunter's portrayal of Ed Kemper was very accurate, except for that last scene that there was no way he would have ever grabbed him. Like that wasn't, he wasn't 
violent like that, which makes it a little bit more understandable that all those police officers were able to become friendly with him. Yeah. yeah. He was a gentle giant, except he wasn't. Yeah. Uh, the shoe guy, the shoe fetish guy was the last killer, also known as Jerry Brutos. He was the one that yanked it in the shoe. Ed Kemper's half brother says that he lives in constant fear of him being released from prison. Like, what kind of good behavior could get you released from eight counts of... Yeah. I mean, that's ridiculous. But they, um, he said that he lives in constant fear that he's going to be released and that he'll come after them. Apparently, he was extremely mean to his siblings growing up and, to, like I said, to their pets. So he, um, his half-brother has changed his name and um, goes by a pseudonym so that he won't won't know who he is in case he's ever released. Also being that tall is terrifying and your killer. I, it, mm, that's terrifying. It's mm-hmm. real disturbing. So my sources were that Crime Junkie um, episode, um, an article on Cinema Blend about Mindhunter, obviously the Wikipedia, which I read some of that to y'all. And then there was an um, an AP article, I don't have the name of it, I'll have to look it up, but um, that talked about um, his life with his grandparents in a little bit more detail. Where was his dad? His, that his parent, he had a really good relationship with his, with his dad and then they divorced and he moved to Montana with his mom, I think. Moved mm. somewhere obscure. Um, and then maybe his dad died. I don't, I don't know. I mean, he, he weighed 13 pounds he when he was born. That's another little fact. He what? He what? Um, he, he weighed 13, 13 pounds? pounds? That's enough to make you hate a kid. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Ed Kemper's mom, I understand a little bit of that animosity, girl. I'm kidding. His mom made him sleep in a locked basement. Mm-hmm as a kid like okay that's rude okay so he lived I just looked I looked at my notes he did live with his father until he went to live with his grandmother so he his father remarried had a son he lived there for a little while and then moved into with his paternal grandparents and those are the ones he killed oh dang Hmm. Can you imagine having a son and that son kills your parents? Nope. <laughs> me neither. No, me neither. Me neither. Can I'm you joking. imagine nope. being a 15-year-old kid and being smart enough to trick the psychiatrist into thinking that you're not a cold-blooded killer? <laughs> Where you did I mean, go let's on just to say that's you. probably not the best psychiatrist. No. Uh, no, no. It could be that he is that well, yeah, 140 is not like Menza, is it? Um, it's, I think it's pretty high up there. There's also psychiatry in the 70s when they didn't even know to look for this stuff. Also that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they didn't know until, until 145 he, to one. Uh, yeah, 145 to 159 is highly gifted. Hmm. 
140 is yeah. considered a genius. I mean, yeah, I mean, they didn't know, right? Like, they didn't have the data we have about serial killers now, back then. And he helped to inform yeah. a lot of that that we have. Yeah. Ah, this filled my cup, you guys. I know that's weird, but <laughs> I appreciate y'all chatting with me on tonight about Mayor Dare. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for talking to me. We shall do fun. it again. Killer Queens 2.0. Yeah, I, I have an idea for our next topic. Our next topic should be favorite unsolved crime. Ooh, <gasps> yes. Oh, that's a good unsolved, one. Is unsolved and cold case the same thing? Or Yes. 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 Okay. Yes. Ooh, okay. Ooh, I like bet, that. Bet, bet. I like it, too. Okay. All right. See okay. y'all later. Bye. Thank you, Shannon. Woo! The theme music is a lo-fi hip-hop situation by Wise Band, and this podcast is produced by the Dallas Stacy. A couple things I need you to remember. I would bet my last dollar that Patsy Ramsey wrote that ransom note. And all lives can't matter until the brown ones do too. My name is Shannon, and have you noticed my salt and pepper bangs?